now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. This is awkward. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's gonna it's it's gonna be a hard week. Um, you know, obviously my haircut didn't turn out the way that I want, but I think over over time. We'll be able to get through this as a, as a collective group and as a nation. So thank you guys for being here for this very important moment. Um, <laughs> making jokes. I think it looks nice, Nick. It's good. It's good guy. <laughs> um, anyways, hi, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. And uh, special guest, we have... Uh, Associate Pro uh, Professor of Theology at Bellarmine uh, University, uh, Dr. Justin uh, Clausen, correct, with mm -hmm. us this week? Right. Man, I'm just screwing up everything with you today. <laughs> no, no, you got it. <laughs> Anyways, Justin, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm going to forgo pretty much everything we do at the beginning with social and all that fun stuff. Uh, you know, share the podcast, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. You can buy some merch that, uh, you know, Bill is, uh, is promoting right now. Um, there's just a tre tremendous amount of stuff to talk about. Um, it's, it's, uh, this is without a doubt the most bizarre week that we've had in the four years of doing this podcast. I'm sure the most we've said that a lot, lot, Nick. We've said that a lot. <laughs> I hope it doesn't go any farther than this because I'm not sure what would be beyond this. Um, yeah, Bill, I mean, you know, try and explain what the hell just happened. <laughs> let's, let's do it. So, welcome to Infrastructure Week. Finally, we've hit Infrastructure Week. <laughs> Uh, if life were only that simple. So over the last week, we've watched history unfold before our eyes. Thousands across the country have taken to the streets to protest racism and police violence after the killing of George Floyd, uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis. Many of the peaceful protests have been accompanied by looting and the destruction of property. Put together, it has made for a traumatic, horrifying, and at times uplifting week that has left the country teetering on the edge of chaos. We're going to devote the entire episode to the week's developments. We're lucky to be joined by Justin Clausen to help us think through all of these developments. In the first half of the episode, we will take a big picture look at the protests, the looters, and Trump's response to it all. For instance, can and will he invoke the Insurrection, Insurrection Act to deploy the military across the country? And what does all of this mean for the country as a whole? Then in the second half of the episode, we're going to narrow in on Trump's Bible photo op and consider the role of religion in all of this. But to start off, let's offer some initial impressions of the history we were all bearing witness to. Justin, why don't you start us off by with some of your own reactions from the week? Sure. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to be here, you guys. It's great. Um, I think that, you know, my my initial impression was um, I didn't know what was going on and I felt um, upset about it because I was actually camping as of Thursday and uh, demonstrations really started then and on the weekend, especially in Louisville, 
And uh, so I had terrible reception, but I heard people talking. Um, you know, I was trying to stay socially distant, but I overheard things uh, were happening in town. Um, and so I was kind of desperate to get back and, and find out about it. And my first kind of um, impression was, especially, I don't know, around the campground, was that it is just still so very hard for people of color to be heard in their anguish in this country. And um, what I mean by that is like the inclination of a lot of people to go straight for the um, this logic that says, well, I, it's very sad that, that um, black people have been killed, but, um, but do they have to break windows? Uh, that sort of thing that, that it's reversed, right? Instead of, instead of, well, it's sad or it's hard that looting is taking place. But I mean, you know, the main thing is right. Why, why are black people being killed at disproportionate rates and um, in unjust circumstances? And um, so that was kind of surprising to me and then, uh, or not surprising, I guess, but disheartening. But then, you know, when I got back and I was kind of picking up uh, with folks around the country and also my family up in Canada, um, it actually struck me that more people are sensitive to the problems of that argument. And so maybe there are more people on cable news um, worried about that than there are in real life. And, and to me, that was a change. I, I have had actually fewer actual conversations with folks that go, well, I believe, of course, you know, that Black Lives Matter, but um, you know, if only they could just listen to Martin Luther King, right? Um, that kind of thing, trotting out Dr. King as an example of someone who was appropriately passive, um, you know, in this kind of forgetful way uh, that people often do. I feel like there's been less of that. And so to me, this feels actually like a, a possibly um, healthy awakening. And there's also the really handy fact that when people object to um, quote unquote, violent, but, you know, really it's just disruptive, right? Really disruptive and possibly destructive to property aspects of the protests. Um, it's, it's nice for us now that we have, we, we can actually go back to like Colin Kaepernick who, who really didn't destroy any property and, and they didn't want that either. Right. And so we can see that really, I mean, people just don't want uh, protests. Some people, right. Some people really just don't want um, there to be serious questions raised about the status quo. Um, so anyway, those were those were some of my impressions. But also, you know, of course, Trump, I was um, uh, in some ways like I, I mean, I'm not surprised, but I'm, I'm stunned. I'm continually stunned at his inability even to just like there are these opportunities that he has even to just be um, empathetic. Like he doesn't have to change any policy like he it would cost him nothing, really, you know, with his own base even um, to just say. This is real pain, you know, that that black people experience in this country and it's got a long history. It would be so simple and he wouldn't have to, you know, throw police or even law and order his favorite things to support under the under the bus. Um, but he just refuses. He just cannot do it. He is constitutionally incapable of um, recognizing that the status quo that gives him a tremendous amount of benefits could even be worthy of criticism at any point. And so that's been disgusting. And, and also like, you know, I've just, my kids have, uh, we watched one day, we watched like one cable news show one, one evening, I think it was Monday night. And of course, you know, they play clips of the president and whatever. And, and actually that was the night where he did the, the Bible thing. Right. Yeah. Monday night. Um, and so we were seeing, you know, the, the dispersal of, and then, and then we were also hearing, and we're Episcopal, 
Christians, you know, our family, we go to an Episcopal church. And so we're hearing the Episcopal Bishop of uh, Washington, D.C. respond to that and, um, and, and seeing, you know, the stuff that Trump said, he could barely say George Floyd's name, uh, you know, and all he could talk about was domination. And this was very troubling to my like 13 or 14 year old who, um, uh, you know, it's like they want, they just want someone to tell them that, um, uh, we have, we have work to do, but we can do it together, you know, but that is just like the opposite of what, um, and we also, you know, we have, uh, friends and we ourselves go and participate sometimes in, um, peaceful protests. And, uh, and so they're really scared. Um, I wanted to go yesterday, uh, downtown Louisville and, um, you know, there's just a lot of fear in my family about what that would look like, especially because uh, Trump has been insisting to the governors, you know, that they're, they'll look like jerks and fools if they don't utterly dominate. Um, luckily for us, I guess, um, you know, our governor isn't hasn't been totally susceptible to that um, encouragement in Kentucky. But, you know, that being said, the National Guard did come in and a, and a black man was killed on Sunday night. Uh, so we, though, after the call with the governors, um, our governor actually did decide to dial things back. And so the National Guard presence is being reduced. Um, and I've noticed that the police are just not engaging anymore either. Um, so so anyway, yeah, it's troubling. Uh, I got a lot of people, you know, uh, in Canada, especially calling me and, and saying what's going on down there. Right. And especially because Brianna Taylor, um, her story uh, is very close to home. Um so, uh, so yeah, it feels, it feels strange. There's lots of helicopters and, and stuff like that, that you just don't normally, I mean, this is not DC where the, where these kind of unnamed or unspecified militaristic, uh, security forces are apparently being deployed in the last couple of days and they won't, uh, indicate to anyone who they belong to and that sort of thing. We're not quite having that here, but, uh, it, it definitely feels like a, a, a scary moment. So, Yeah it's it's been a it's it's been a weird week in that it's been this week of 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 it's kind of a you know of, of dualism right there are like these two senses that i that i get and it's easy to focus on the really pessimistic side of it because that and i think that's what i spent most of the week focusing on right to watch this mm-hmm. kind of spill out and to watch trump's response and the police response i mean you were talking about like the governor sort of not 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 going down that road in kentucky there's lots of lots of research on protests and on you know how to handle protests and de-escalation it is it works right es- escalation rarely works so when when all the police you know there were really interesting contrasts some places where the police didn't escalate and others were from the start they're out there in their riot gear like some of the videos that went around this week i mean if the police wanted to craft a response to confirm the the you know, the, the premise of the protests it, in many places, it would have been hard for them to do a better job of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff mm-hmm. that they did just mm-hmm. absolutely fulfilled it. But you see the contrast in other places. Mm-hmm. So that that's, you know, that's depressing. I mean, we'll talk about Trump here in a little bit, his, his rhetoric and how he's responding is, is, is depressing. But in other ways, like you, you see these protests and I, I was just down in downtown Keene, which is, you know, not a big town, but there was this huge, you know, this, this big rally there. And in other ways, you see, you see, like I, I don't, I don't want to in any way insinuate that, like, eh, you know, we've we've succeeded because because we have so far to go on this topic. But 
the difference in the look of of that protest and what you see on TV today versus 10 years ago versus, you know, uh, 50 years ago, right? When you get back into the civil rights movement, it looks different. Like it's young, it's diverse. It's not just black people that are out there protesting. And and so it feels like Mm -hmm. the message is in some way getting through. And And you see that in the, in the, polling numbers that have been out. Trump's approval rating, when asked specifically about his handling of this issue, um, is pretty abysmal, right? I think it's 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 kind of a widespread, a right, widespread thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, the other, I guess, difference that that is really now evident is um, um, the protests uh, that the lockdown opponents were waging on state capitals just a couple of weeks ago. And in Kentucky, you know, um, Governor Bashir has been very, um, very proactive, very like strategic, very uh, following the CDC. And, and he's a Democrat. And um, but, he, you know, it's Kentucky. Right. So he's a Kentucky Democrat. And so he's always making sure he says this is actually what the White House officially wants us to be doing and stuff, too. Not, not really what Trump wants. But um, but, he, you know, he's been doing all that stuff. And for a lot of Kentuckians, um, he was a source of comfort during the during the quarantine um, period. And and yet there were also these really, um, you know, violent, uh, like violent in the sense of they actually hung him in effigy from a tree out on the Capitol lawn. And they were screaming while he was doing his daily briefings um, and holding AR-15s and screaming in the face of the Capitol police and stuff. And in that case, um, you know, uh, the governor would just be like, well, you know, we got to respect these people's right to pro I sure hope they're social distancing, but, uh, you know, you can hear them in the background and they're protesting and that's an important right and blah, blah, blah. Right. And I mean, there was no talk of national guard or, or of any kind of like of any use of force. I mean, the photographs that we saw, the police were just standing there completely stoic. Um, and these people are screaming right in their faces, right. Without face masks. And, I just thought, wow. And here you have one one thing and it's like cops in in combat gear uh, immediately, Um, despite the fact that, um, you know, I know some some of my colleagues are actually also ordained clergy. And so they've been they've been doing participating in these demonstrations as clergy, kind of a a religious response to uh, systemic racism and. Um, so I I trust their accounts of what's going on. And, And 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 it was much more peaceful, much more um, conciliatory uh, to start right before the cops started acting uh, than any of those protests about uh, the COVID quarantine measures. So, uh, but, you know, all those people were white. So anyway, it's, it's just like very, just to have them so close back to back, it's just undeniable. It, it feels, I mean, this feels to me, like I was trying to find, like, it, it does feel like, I don't want to be sensationalist. There have been, you know, news stories that have kind of spun this as like this kind of breaking point or or this point of crisis. And it does feel like the most significant point in my lifetime. I was trying to think of like when, you know, when were things this tense in America um, prior to this? And, and I mean, there've been crises in my lifetime, but not like this sort of divisive kind of crisis. And I don't know if it's the civil rights movement. I don't know if it goes back to great depression. I, I, Bill, Nick, what, like, where do you, how do you kind of make sense of all of this? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you can not only, I, I think you're right. I, it's hard to think back. I mean, you go back to 1968. I think that's obviously a, an important time as well, but I don't know if that was as global as this. Yeah. So we've seen, I mean, you know, if you've watched the footage from around the world, people are showing up and protesting 
and that's kind of stunning, right? That the idea that this this movement is not just in the United States, uh, it is it has having a global effect, and that. Again, that that is stunning. So when you think about all the bad news that's played out this week, and there's been a lot of ugliness, there is a lot of hope uh, that this could change the conversation. Again, and you want it to be more than just a conversation, right? You want real, tangible steps. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, one of the more stunning thing, things was uh, the the statement that George W. Bush released yesterday. Mm. Uh, it was, Justin, to go back to your point, it was such a contrast to Trump. Mm-hmm. And you kind of realize that this is not in Trump's skill set. He doesn't have the ability uh, to handle a moment like this, right? It's just it's not what he does well. He's good at divisive stuff. He's good at you know playing off anger, but he's not good at pulling people together. And man, George W. Bush, just in reading that statement, was. And I know as we tape right now, Barack Obama is, is giving a statement. I'll be curious to see uh, what he says there. But that that longing for somebody. Uh, to be able to say the right thing, to talk about listening. And, and uh, it was really, I mean, I guess that I, I'm no big fan of George W. Bush, but I certainly was of that statement yesterday. Mm-hmm. Nick, why don't you hop in? Yeah, um, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be in pretty fundamental opposition to a lot of things that are going to be said today. So um, I, I, I agree. I think the makeup of this and, and this situation is fundamentally different from anything that we've seen previously in, in a really good, positive way. There's a, just a, a, a huge swath of the country that would have never gotten involved in any of this. And even five years ago to mm-hmm. go up fundamentally against instances of police brutality in any capacity. This is this this is a, a seminal moment that I realistically never thought that I would see in my lifetime. And yeah, most of the protests, at least through, you know, the the early stages and, and up until, you know, things tend to get violent later on are the really positive and, and going in a good direction. And I think there's a good conversation being had. Having said that, I'll just give you my personal experience from the past few days. So like I mentioned, my fiance is a, a pediatric oncology nurse who works at one of the hospitals in downtown Chicago. So, you know, the epitome of white privilege. Um, she was working on Saturday as the protests were going on, uh, was getting ready to go home, uh, was blocked in by protesters, harassed by protesters, had to duck into her friend's apartment in downtown Chicago, was forced to stay there overnight as every single building, all the windows were broken. Everything was tagged, setting fire to buildings literally on every single corner around her, setting fire to a CVS across the street that had apartments one floor above it to the point. Where she, and it was all night. You know, the, the media made it sound like it was over in a couple of hours. It was 13 hours straight of sitting there, not being able to do anything, wondering if people were going to break further into the apartment building because they did actually get in at one point. And then worrying that her car was going to get torched overnight, which thank God it didn't. But plenty of uh, plenty of uh, uh, cars around hers uh, did. And then you come home and then you have a protest out in Naperville, which has never, ever happened. It's considered the wealthiest suburb in, in the Midwest. Nothing like that has ever, ever happened. And realistically, the vast majority of it throughout the day was positive. Cops were supportive of it. We're escorting the protesters. Everything was going good. And then as soon as it started getting dark, people start throwing frozen water bottles at cops, yelling, fuck the police. 
ACAB, which I didn't realize was all cops are bastards. And these are the most privileged white kids you will ever meet in your fucking life. <laughs> Sitting in the middle of the street, fine, you do that. And then all of a sudden, somebody lobs a, a friggin' mortar into a group of cops just standing there, not doing anything, not harassing anybody. Nobody had been touched the entire night. And then everybody scatters to the wind, windows start breaking all over the town, like dozens of businesses. And it, it went on like that. For, I watched the entire live feed. It was for over four hours of people just going in and looting, police not touching anybody, trying to cordon off different sections of the city just to kind of move people out. There was no aggressive behavior whatsoever. And now I hear that they're planning another demonstration for this weekend. And the cops are supportive of that too, saying you can say whatever you want, you can put whatever you want on signs, just don't break any laws. Fine, but this is the thing. Like, I, I get it, man. I, 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 and I'm still in 100% support of this movement. I, like I said, this is a, a conversation that needed to happen and should be happening right now. But it's, it's now, it's, it's morphed into something else. When you have cities across the country just engulfed in looting and rioting in broad daylight, where New York refuses to bring in the National Guard when it's days upon days where people are getting shot and stabbed and run over, not only cops, but protesters too, by other protesters, people defending their businesses. That is unconscionable. It's ridiculous. And nobody is, is, is like, again, the conversation needs to keep happening, but this is something different and something does need to be done about it. And you can say that you support the movement and you don't support rioting and looting of businesses, especially in a place like this. This place just opened all of four days ago after COVID. And now every business in, that, in, in this town is completely boarded up for an indeterminate amount of time. Like I, you, they they tore they completely destroyed a thirty year old Thai food restaurant, the epitome of a small business, probably the worst hit one in the town. And you can talk about all the chains and all that. They have insurance and it's property damage. These are people that have lost ninety percent of their business over the past three months, especially immigrant families and people who work at these businesses. Like it, it, and and you're going to say that it's just property damage. This is different. You, in conjunction with what's happened over the past three months, people are furious out here. And in, 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 in every major city where, again, the immigrant businesses that don't have good insurance, who don't have the ability to claw their way back out of COVID and now riots, they're going to have to try and deal with this. That's complete and utter bullshit. And yeah, I don't like the, the president's response. But again, like we talked about the past few weeks, he is not the be-all, end-all of what is done and what the response should be. And you know what the most positive, response have been, uh, positive responses have been across the country? It's been from law enforcement getting together with protesters and groups of people saying, we support you outside of New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. People saying, you're part of our community. You know, th this is a major problem that needs to be taken care of. And we support your right to, to have this this moment and we want to be part of it too. And, and nobody seems to talk about that. It's just the stories constantly about cops are pieces of shit while they're getting run ragged across major cities across the country. And nobody gives a shit about them. I've, I've got a, 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 a family friend 
who's been a cop for two decades, who served in Afghanistan. And he goes, it was bad over there. This is maybe the worst week I've had in my life. And all I've done is try and help these people, not help, you know, minority groups, but help my community. Not again, not trying to, to turn it into a racial thing. And he said, I just I, I want to forget this week ever happened. Mm-hmm. And it, he was he was in Afghanistan for over a year. That's it a is, fucking problem. It is. So Nick and I both live in, in Naperville. And that has been something where I mean, you feel like oftentimes these hit in urban areas. It's separate from a white affluent. Naperville is, is white. It's affluent. It's you know, it's about a suburb as you can get. And when you drive downtown Naperville right now, all of the businesses, all of them are boarded up. It look, it's, it's such a surreal experience. Um, I think it speaks to the degree to which this is fundamentally different, where this is not simply occurring in urban neighborhoods. This is spreading all over the place. And I think you're, you're right, Nick, that there's, there's room to have a conversation about who's engaging in violence. What is the nature of that? Right. That, that's all, that's all important as well. And we can't just look the other way. Um, but it is it is stunning to see the way in which this is is filtering out beyond just the just the cities. And we we want people have a tendency to want to simplify this into like a black and white thing. And I, I like I, I totally understand your frustration, Nick. But it, it's also the same the the same sense, which is to say that you're able to dis, to distinguish between you know the shitty cops and and the cops who are out there trying to do the right thing we ha- we have to do that we also have to do that with the protesters and recognize that yeah there are people there are assholes out there who are you know looting and doing whatever but they're not the majority of the of the protesters and i i've, I've struggled with this right because it's hard like i i the idea of of resorting to violence and property destruction doesn't sit well with me but I also try to think about like if if I were a, if I were a black man and had spent ye- my whole life basically protesting peacefully and and not a damn thing has happened. Like I, there have been times where like I get to a level of frustration where the anger like spills over in a way that's like disproportionate to the particular instance that I'm dealing with. And I think about that in a, in a way in which like you know every other thing like the one thing that actually gets attention is property destruction. People go out and march in the streets peacefully and everybody, you know, it feels comfortable with it. You break in a window and all of a sudden everybody gives a shit. And so it, I, like, I, I don't know, I don't know how to, how to deal with that nuance, right? Like I, I, like I, I don't like the idea that that is happening. The victims of that are innocent victims, oftentimes in neighborhoods mm-hmm. that are, you know, oftentimes, you know, blacked out, you know, they're majority minority neighborhoods. And so um, that's a, it's a, it's a, terrible turn of events but i also like i i i don't know i i can also understand why it gets to that point like where i i was at the protest today in keen and a, a guy showed up with a trump flag and and there aren't you know keen is not a diverse town and the the guy with the trump flag you know ran in circles around the protest and people yelled at him but there were a couple of black guys who clearly wanted to beat the shit out of the guy and other people had to hold him back. And, and I, I sort of empathize with that, right? Like if this had been what I'd been experiencing, like I'd want to do something violent. And so I, I try to, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to make sense of that other than to recognize that, that nothing in this is, is simple. Here's, it's, here's su- the thing. it's super. Yeah. Go ahead. Justin. Oh, well, it, I was just going to say it's, it's really complicated and uh, you know, like there's a m- number of different issues involved. So in Louisville, We've had issues where um, Black Lives Matter activists have actually been asking, especially white so-called allies, to stop breaking windows 
and to stop rioting because it, it's almost like this recreational activity, like this fun kind of like catharsis, right? That, that black people know this puts me in more danger, right? So don't be doing this. So there's that aspect. There's also the aspect of just um, that when people are so upset and they do experience this anguish that is never heard by the system. And also they're not trained. Like, like we forget that, the most effective demonstrations and often the leaders of these movements, they know this, they train for nonviolent activism, right? You have to practice it. You have to like actually get into the habit. It doesn't come natural to us. And so right now what we're seeing is, is a volcanic, you know, surge of this pain that also will be destructive sometimes because it is un, uneducated. Like it's not that it's uneducated. It's un. Um, you know, it's not refined. It's not, it's not any of that stuff. It's not practiced. Right. And so, yeah, there are, you know, from in, in Louisville, what I'm trying to do is listen to the people that are, um, that do do this, but I'm also listening to people like, you know, there's a, one of the pastors at a predominantly black church, downtown Louisville, um, basically a person said very similarly to your complaint, Nick, actually, right here are these, these businesses and some of the protests actually have been intentionally moved to the east end of Louisville, which is predominantly white, we have what's called the Ninth Street Divide. And so on the west side of Ninth Street, I mean, it's, you know, the formerly redlined area of town, and um, it's totally economically depressed and, and all that stuff that happens in segregated cities. And um, so anyway, this black pastor says, uh, I know, yeah, it's not the right method, right, to bring about change. To, to And now you have your businesses boarded up. But, but I want you to take a drive through the west end of Louisville. And you'll discover that all the businesses are boarded up. They've been boarded up for 35 years, uh, some of them, right? Um, th this, is a, this is a place that, that, and he calls it plantation capitalism, has forgotten. So kind of like, don't give me this shit, right? That, that uh, oh no, um, this is the first time that you've really had to reckon with um, in a material way, right? The, the damage that the system wreaks on, on, uh, on human life. Um, so he said, you know, it's like, he's like, I'm not recommending it, right? I'm not recommend, but I am saying this now gives you a window into all of a sudden it feels a little bit like you live maybe in the West end. Um, that's where we live all the time. That's where we live constantly. That's, that's our reality. And, uh, guess what? Nobody in St. Matthews, nobody in like these kind of more affluent suburbs of Louisville, um, that are overwhelmingly white, uh, they don't care about that. Right. They read they might read a book about it. But um, when it comes to voting for their city councilor, uh, that sort of thing, I mean, that's not the message that they're listening to. Right. So I don't know. There's there's all those issues. I totally agree. I mean, I personally, I think I'm, I'm with Phil, too. I get I get why it might happen. I, I also think that sometimes it's happening on the part of people that that aren't actually the real primary sufferers of the pain. Right. And so that's that's just that's awful. And that's horrible. Yeah. And uh, anyway, but then then there is this other stuff of like, well, when when will we be heard? Um, and that's I think that's a fair question. It's one I can't necessarily judge, uh, at least not not um, as if I know that pain. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I my realistically, I understand that there there's going to be violence in this situation. Like I, I'm you would be completely unrealistic to think that there's not. My issue is, again, going back to what happened here. So the majority of the protests, again, completely peaceful. When it did get out of hand, 
again, there were um, two solid hours of just walking around the town, seeing who was looting what. The The vast, vast majority were black kids under the age of probably 25 who realistically were not part of the original protest, who were there to be opportunistic, to, to antagonize. And I'm not saying that they were, again, not part of the original group. But at some point, this continues to go on and nothing, it, 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 it affects the movement. It affects the message where it, it may not be the people, the primary people who are trying to get their message across. But as time goes on, days now, a, a solid week of this going on, you lose the the efficacy and the potentness of the message you're trying to put out there. So at some point, you have to push back against that. Killer Mike talking in Atlanta mm-hmm. about, you know, don't destroy your own community. I get that you're mad. You, what you need to do is plot and figure out how you're going to change this at a political level to, to, to change the system, to make it benefit you and that the system is wrong for putting you in this position. But the best thing that you can do is strategize how you're going to change this politically. And that's a powerful thing to say from someone who's still going, I'm mad as hell and I completely get it. And I want to go out there and throw a brick at somebody or a building or set something on fire. But that's not going to to solve this problem. And you see it here already. People in in Naperville going up to, to businesses that had their windows broken that are boarded up, tearing off BLM signs because they are mad as shit. And you're starting to militarize people who would not otherwise be militarized because they think they've been wrong. Their businesses have been shut down. The, the, they've been harassed in their own town, which they never, ever thought would happen. And you can talk about the, 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 the difference in um, uh, the wealth gap and, and everything else that's evolved in this, in this discussion. That doesn't matter. You, again, you want to talk about the president. The fundamental thing that all of us should be aware of and and that is core to the discussions that we have is, at least from my perspective, is that all politics is local, is it not? And then when this this shit happens, whatever the president is saying, people are going to care about when their businesses are closed, when they've been harassed, Mm -hmm. when something happens to affect their lives. And the more and more time goes on where that does happen, it's this is going to fundamentally shift the conversation into something other than what was originally intended. Well, and if, if, it, if it plays out too long, so if, if, if the, and I, I tend to think that the violence is likely to, to ebb over the next few days, but the protests are going to continue. If it doesn't play out that way, this does play into Trump's hand, right? I mean, the, what he is craving is continued violence, continued looting, because then he can continue to run with this law and order theme. I mean, Phil, this is classic comparative politics, right? This is when you've got a protest movement and you've got a nonviolent movement, what the the repressive regime wants is one tiny act of violence because it enables them to then crush. So, I mean, it's a really delicate balance. But but to Justin's point, it's so hard to have these organic movements bubble up and and try to say something and do it always in a perfect way. It just it doesn't happen like that, especially in a world when you've got agitators on both the left and the right who are benefiting from increased agitation, right? I mean, they you've got, again, whether, whether it's Antifa or whether it's right-wing nationalist groups, certainly they benefit from uh, further destruction and violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I, I, I like how about that so what is <laughs> what do you think about the those those elements do you th- i mean i i know my particular perspective just because i have direct evidence of it but the those elements so antifa and other elements within not this movement but have attached themselves to this movement to be opportunistic my this is like the the crux of my my whole thing with this argument is whatever the discussion that we're having right now um i think that the media coverage of it has been reprehensible uh in the way that they've approached it and i'll certainly go into detail about that later on but again based on evidence that I've seen and that people have fed me, especially from downtown Chicago, when people talk about those pallets of bricks showing up, that's a real fucking thing. <laughs> like there's there is some organized element that is trying to exacerbate this problem and is like in 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 a an exceptionally robust and widespread way that I have never really seen in any other situation. Um again, talking about what my uh, my fiance witnessed, somebody pulled up uh, right below their building with a, uh, a flatbed truck full of two by fours. Like we have pictures of it and people just start taking it out and just smashing windows left and right. Like what? what I, I, I mean, go, going back to my original, not original point, but but previous point that this is giving these people more time to to change the narrative of this and that's that's scary to me because i like i i i don't know like what are what are your thoughts on on those elements and what it's doing to this i i mean i think you're you're right i I mean i think that people are looking to capitalize on this or to you know anytime there's some sort of opportunity there are going to be people people who try to take advantage of that opportunity um i my tendency is to think that they are, it, it's not that those don't exist. It's that if we can get so bogged down in talking about the, those elements or the, you know, there's so many aspects to this that it's easy to, to miss the forest for the trees. And, and for me, like, I, I, I don't want to deny all of that that's happening, but it seems like there's one really big story, which is this like massive outpouring. Like uh, it's now all 50 States and like 40 countries worldwide. It's now like, I saw somebody pointing out, it's the largest, you know, mass demonstration in, in history now because of this. Um, and, and that, so there's this b- really big message and it's not that those side ones, those side stories don't matter or aren't important, but I don't, I don't want to miss the, the bigger story because of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, which is in some ways the thing I don't want to take their bait, right? So there are these groups that are that are doing this sort of yeah. stuff, and I don't want to deny that that's happening. But I also, you know, how we deny them their their victory is to not lose our focus on the bigger story that that's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, none of the people that I've been out with and that I've been following who are organizing demonstrations are, I mean, they're anti-fascists for sure, but like they're not this nebulous Antifa. Um, whatever that means. Right. So they're not, they're not, and they're not organizing, um, you know, uh, trucks to damage things on purpose and stuff. They're actually people that um, they do a lot of reading about, um, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, maybe as like they read Saul Alinsky. Right. And so, yeah, sure. That's radical, but it's strategic. I mean, it has like a purpose in mind and it's always about using the energy of the system in a way that, that you can actually get to the result that you intend. 
Um, and, and then, you know, the rest of the people that are, that come out are just like people that are, that are sick and tired of their friends being, you know, feeling like they should be feared. Um, so that's like, to me, that's, that's all that I've really experienced. Now I've watched the news and stuff. And so I know that there's other things going on, but I, I think I agree with Phil that it would be, um, it would be problematic for, just even like for this moment of reckoning, that would be like a, di- that's a different thing to reckon with. And it's a much smaller, uh, as far as morally speaking for a society as a whole, it's a much smaller thing to me. Right. So thinking about the biases of the criminal justice system is the opportunity right now and, and is the important one that we should seize, not necessarily thinking about like, does the left or the right infiltrate most effectively or who's more dangerous or whatever. Like that's a small, I just feel like overall, Right. Globally speaking, it's a small piece of the I think it's it's totally um, interesting and important to think about. But it's just not it's not as important as the big stuff. Yeah, I will say if, if the if the violent elements continue, it becomes harder. It it will tear away from the other narrative right it will make oh, yeah. it more difficult to have i agree the yeah. more meaningful conversation right and it will feed into i mean you've already, you're already seeing trump uh calling these groups uh terrorists right which is again we could spend a whole episode just talking about that label uh you had bill barr coming out and saying that this was antifa before we really know that right i mean i think the reality is this is uh, these groups that are engaging in this violence have multiple different motivations. Some, to Nick's point, are just looking to, to loot. Others have political motivations. Others are looking to just burn the whole place down. So, you know, for me, that was too early to be pointing fingers like that, to say this is terrorism, you know, this is this is driven by, by a left wing. So it's, you know, I, we're going to need more time to really understand who those groups were and what their motivations ultimately were. Should we, should we, we got, we got a lot more to talk about, but should we uh, take a quick break and talk beer and then come back? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Before we do that. So I, this is like the point, this is the reason we do this podcast, right? <laughs> like Nick, you're having to put up with three, you know, academics who don't agree with you and you're expressing it. And like, I, this is a hard conversation, right? And this is what we should be doing. And I, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're doing it. Like, I, you know, it's, we are four white guys, but still like, I, I, I'm glad we're having <laughs> yeah. this conversation. Yeah, like, totally. I'm glad I mean, that you're, Totally. All of you can can fuck off, but yeah, no, true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Justin, you're not not having a beer. Why don't you tell us about the bourbon you're enjoying? So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually... The whole bottle. Well, I finished this bottle, so I just thought I'd bring it in here. It's uh, Rabbit Hole Distillery, and uh, it's actually based here in Louisville. And um, it's a four grain small batch uh, bourbon and is really smooth without being overly sweet, which is uh, one of my pet peeves about bourbon. And so, yeah, I've been drink- haven't been drinking a lot of beer lately, um, so I'm enjoying this a lot. And, yeah, it also just felt like, hey, you're having a Kentucky guest. I might as well pour some bourbon. So, yeah. <laughs> well done. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, how about you? So I, uh, I said last week that I went to the local brewery, the Branch and Blade here in Keene and got a few beers last week. I'm having another one of theirs. It's called uh, Clickbait, which is kind of a nice name for a beer. There's the can. Um, uh, and it is, uh, it's, it is, I should have looked up uh, more about it. It's a Hellas beer. It's basically a light, you know, lager-like beer. Um, it is, you know, it's a great summer beer. It's not, you know, nothing overpowering in the flavor, but it's, it's, it's really nice, right? If you want a light beer, uh, a lightish beer that's just kind of refreshing, it, it hits the spot. It's not, it's not like, you know, particularly subtle or nuanced, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty tasty. Nice. Nicholas. 
Uh, I wasn't able to go anywhere just because I was seething in anger for the past several days, but I did have something in the fridge. Um, I had a, uh, a punk lemonade, which this is from the guys who make that, uh, the, the mead that we like. Yeah. Um, I, I just kind of randomly came across it. So this is a, uh, hard cider with raspberry and lemon. Uh, Tom would punch me in the face for having this, but, um, <laughs> yeah, like it's, um, uh, yeah, it's really good. Like, it, I, you imagine something like this to come out looking like neon pink or something and to be exceptionally sweet. It's a really, like, nice light cider that isn't overly effervescent. Um, yeah, hi- highly recommend. I haven't had anything bad from these guys yet. So, be nectar. Check them out. Cool. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. I'm having a summertime, uh, which is from Goose Island. It is their German-style Kolsch. And... Uh, it's really good. A few weeks back, Phil, you were talking about how Pilsners have done like really good things. And this feels like that as well, where it's, you know, there used to be just those standard bland summer beers, but this is really, it's got a little bit of a fruitiness to it. Um, it's very crisp. It's, you know, it's, it's got a good aroma. I, I am very pleased with where uh, Pilsners and, and Kolsch beers Who, are You said it's, so. Go- it's Goose Island. Is that what you said? Uh, Goose Island, which yeah, they're, you know, big Chicago brewery. Um, I never, and, I always uh, come across, you know, like these sort of micro looking beers from these big breweries. And I, I always am I'm hesitant. I'm always gun shy, but I know that they do make good stuff. I, I should actually try some of those every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Goose Island, when they first came out, I love them. I'm not as sold on their stuff, but this, this was really good from them. All right. Cool. So we're, uh, Oh, Nick, you want to do the, the, no, beer thing or yeah, find us on, all right. We're not going to do speed <laughs> round. We're going to do another 30 minutes talking about another big topic, uh, relating to the week's events. So on Monday evening, federal authorities use tear gas. Well, we could debate tear gas, but, uh, to clear gas that causes tears, right. not technically tear gas. It's just <laughs> yeah. gas that makes people cry. Pepper spray. Yeah. Uh, to clear Lafayette Square so President Trump could pose for a photo while holding a Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal Church. While the crowd was being, quote, dispersed, Trump delivered a speech in the Rose Garden declaring himself, quote, your president of law and order and scolding the country's governors for not being tough enough. The photo session lasted for about 15 minutes and involved a truly bizarre photo of Trump awkwardly, awkwardly displaying a Bible. It was as if the guy had never held a Bible before or he thought it was going to start on fire. Um, he was accompanied by a group of aides, including Attorney General Bill Barr, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, as well as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, U.S. Army General Mark Millay. Millie. So much to break down here, including Trump's use of religion, the idea of Trump as your president of law and order, and the blurring of the civilian-military divide. Uh, Justin, given that this is your second appearance on the podcast, you are now officially our senior theological analyst. So what did you make of the administration's use of religion in the midst of this crisis? Uh, so, yeah, that was a that was a really um, strange moment. And now uh, I guess one of the – was it Mark Esper? Um, he basically said, like, I didn't know where we were going, right? Like, I didn't know this was going to happen. I'm embarrassed. Um, there's a lot of embarrassment uh, among even top uh, White House officials over this thing. But I think that there are a lot of people that probably um, enjoyed Trump's, um, I guess it was an assertion of a kind of like divine mandate. Um, the funny part about it is of course that he doesn't seem to have read the Bible and you know, all that stuff. Right. So, um, his, his, his own personal religiousness, um, is not really, uh, for him, it's not relevant. And because he knows that it's politically powerful, uh, to symbolize, uh, religiousness. Um, so even if the symbol is empty and there are a lot of people 
in the United States and, and, you know, his support among evangelicals remains pretty strong. So, um, what I thought when he, you know, what was he doing here? Um, I basically just thought this is one of those, uh, very common throughout history gestures on the part of a leader to give his, uh, sovereignty, a kind of higher authorization. And so, you know, uh, he didn't care. He, somebody asked him outright, you know, is that your Bible? And he goes, it's a Bible, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> he was like, it's a Bible, right? I'm doing this, you know, this is the picture, right? And here I am holding it very awkwardly. Um, but it's a Bible. So whatever, who cares if it's mine? Um, and that's a very interesting, it, it's, it, it was very interesting because it's also very characteristically American in terms of the religious right in America in the last, uh, like kind of since the moral majority movement um, in the late seventies and into the eighties. And, um, and basically what it is, is it's a way of thinking about religiousness that doesn't allow for religion actually to transcend the nation state. So the sovereignty of the nation state and the, and the authority of God become completely uh, collapsed into one another. And what that does is it enables, it, it basically, um, well, it prevents religion from ever having a critical uh, lens to offer on the status quo. Um, so God becomes a completely in-house reality, right? Uh, totally accessible, perfectly accessible to those in power and utterly incapable, too feeble to ever offer a critique. Um, so that's, that's like a weird, and, and, and again, historically speaking, it's a, it's a pretty specifically American, uh, thing. I mean, it, it's one reason why Pope Francis, you know, from, from a Catholic standpoint is a controversial figure for American Catholics is because American Catholics, um, they, they, uh, are very suspicious uh, and in part, this is because, you know, they have uh, a long history of being persecuted in, in this country, right? This is a very Protestant country. And so, um, uh, you know, I remember when, when like Jeff Bush was running for president, right? And of course, he's Catholic and, and uh, Ann Coulter was like, this guy's going to listen to the Pope, right? He won't listen to the American. And, but that's an interesting thing about the Catholic Church. And I'm not, I'm not Roman Catholic myself, but about the Catholic Church is that it actually um, represents the fact that divine authority is above the authority of worldly rulers by the fact that it has its own separate state, right? There is this other place that is actually more authoritative. And so then Jeb Bush was in this awkward position of saying, I'm not going to listen to the Pope. You know, how dare you, right? I'll listen to the, which then a lot of American Catholics were like, really? Like, are you going to, a little bit? Like, shouldn't you kind of listen to the Pope if you're Catholic? Um, so there's this awkward, uh, we're very suspicious in the United States of people who actually believe that God's authority transcends the sovereignty of the nation state. And Trump knows that. And so he made use of that fact, that suspicion, uh, by doing this photo op. And um, because, you know, it's really funny, like, and, and the fact that it came right after his insistence on law and order. And I think actually, maybe when I was with you guys the first time establishing my credentials as a theological analyst, um, I think we might have been talking about like, were we talking about immigration yeah. and, and Jeff Canadian Sessions and stuff? Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so when Jeff Sessions was attorney general, um, he was making this claim about actually a similar kind of claim to what Trump is now asserting with the Bible thing, um, which is he was interpreting a passage from Romans 13 
where uh, he basically was like, yeah, this ba- doesn't it say here you're just supposed to obey anything that any earthly authority ever says, right? So you have to do that. And I'm sorry. And if you're a child, that still holds for you. And so you should be separated from your family or whatever. Um, so there's a similar kind of theological move that's going on here. And what's interesting about the law and order thing is that if you look at the Bible, I mean, I don't want to get overly theological with you guys, but if you look at the Bible, like um, God is not a fan of order for order's sake at all. In fact, a, a lot of the time it's, it's, you know, human, it's God dismantling order. I mean, what I think of as the founding story of the biblical narrative as a whole is the story of the Exodus. And the story of the Exodus is a story of Moses basically coming to a ruler and saying, hey, you know, those people who like you think don't count. Um, well, God, actually, the creator of the universe says that they do count. They matter. They're important. Their lives matter. And Pharaoh is like, F you. How dare you? You think you speak for God? Like, look at me up here, right? I've got a look at my palace. Have you seen my palace? You can't possibly imagine that you speak for God. How dare you? And in fact, let me show you God's power. I think there's something, I mean, this is a historically repeated pattern of people in power seeking this kind of authorization. Um, But anyway, God demonstrates that God is totally indifferent to the hierarchies that humans set up. That's one of the main themes of the Bible. Um, You know, and then it comes back in the New Testament, too, where Jesus is kind of recapitulating Moses's ethic. Uh, and the prophets after Moses in the Hebrew Bible are also recapitulating this ethic, ethic um, essentially for the Israelites in the Hebrew Bible. Again, I'll stop talking so much about the Bible, but uh, in a second. <laughs> but for, for the Israelites, uh, they they keep on being reminded by their own prophets that remember, God is the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's who God is. Remember that. You're forgetting that because now there are oppressed people in your midst. And so you've forgotten that you you don't know who God is. God is the God who brought you out of Egypt, which means that this God is perfectly willing to dismantle any human system that you've set. You can't ever come to God, in other words, and say, I know there's injustice and like it's hard and there's a wealth gap and stuff, but like GDP, right? Like it's like it's up like the stock market, you know, the Dow Jones. God does not give a shit about that in the Bible. Um, So that's that's the kind of thing that's going on right now in American Christianity. So I'm not even just talking about the electorate or like the political thing is that there's this interesting moment. And I think it was captured nicely by the photo op and then the bishop's response to it. And even actually the bishop, the Catholic Bishop of Washington, D.C. issued a very uh, strong statement um, against Trump's visit to a Catholic shrine for uh, Pope St. John Paul II. Um where you're having this moment of of basically American Christians having to have this this kind of conversation about am I Christian first or American first or what how does my patriotism how does my fidelity to the sovereignty of the nation state uh, relate to my supposed and and like you know to my bumper sticker that says Jesus right and uh, there I think people are kind of starting to recognize that those may sometimes be intention. And they, you may have to be, as a result of your Christian uh, commitments, you may have to be deeply skeptical and even critical and, uh, you know, willing to deconstruct um, the, the status quo of the nation state. And that's, that's not something that we're used to doing. And, you know, when I ask my students, like, um, 
sometimes I'll say like, okay, so just imagine, right? Like I teach this course on religion and environmental ethics. I also teach a course on religion and war. I said, just imagine I tell you, I'm going to invite my friend into the room in a second. He's going to come into the classroom and his name is John and he is super Christian. Okay. And then I just asked them to write down, what are your assumptions that you just made about John? Right. And none of their assumptions that they just made about John is, oh, John loves God so much that he's perfectly willing to stand, to be a nonconformist um, to the nation state, that he is probably a super hardcore environment because he loves creation. He loves God's creation. And so he's going to, or that, um, because he loves God and God is the creator of all persons and all things visible and invisible, that he is not going to be for war in any circumstance. They never say that, right? Because in America, we make an assumption that to be super Christian and to be basically in lockstep with whatever the powers that be say is necessary is, uh, is automatic. Um, that connection. So anyway, I was thinking just a little bit about um, Martin Luther King Jr. Because I just taught uh, this book, Strength to Love, in a class. And uh, and he's got this chapter in this book that's called um, Transformed Nonconformist. And he interprets this passage. Actually, it's right around the passage that, that uh, Jeff Sessions was was quoting and using to like get everybody to be in lockstep with the administration on immigration, at least if they're a Christian. And um, it says, "Be not be, be not conformed to this world." And anyway, you know, King just riffs on this and says that nobody, nobody in history has been a more dedicated nonconformist than Jesus. Um, and he is, and he doesn't mean by that. Um, an anarchist, right? That, that like a purposeless nonconformist, like a person who just says no, no matter what, right? Uh, but uh, he calls it a transformed nonconformist, someone who actually thinks about justice, even if it costs you friends in the status quo or position in the status quo or, or authority or, or benefits. Um, so, yeah, so you have that. And actually that is really captured in the black church tradition at large in general in this country. Uh, where the black church tradition is what theologians would call a prophetic branch of Christianity. Uh, that is the prophets in the Bible are always the ones who are going like you bunch of shitheads claim that you love God, but you, you've never cared about an orphan, a widow or a stranger in your life. And so that's bullshit. And then, uh, and then the people uh, ostracize them and uh, send them into exile or kill them, uh, right? And and I think that the black church, black church theology, is really that prophetic voice and has been that prophetic voice even since the the, the era of chattel slavery in this country, um, right up until the present moment. And so I think Trump asserting this idea of like me and God, we are totally in cahoots, is uh, him going. There is no possibility of prophetic critique of this regime, right? If you, if you invoke God, you have to be with me. That's a, that's a long tradition. And I mean, in the U.S., uh, on both sides of the, I mean, this, there's lots of writing about American civil religion, right? And, and that politicians use this reference to God. And we like to think of God as this, you know, or as America as this godly country without ever getting into the details, right? We can, we can, we can hearken back to this. Um, and that's, you know, every president does that. Um, it's just that the contrast is so stark with Trump. And it feels like, I don't know if that, if that's a debate that's already going on uh, or if it's the the contrast that Trump brings out that's sort of helping to foster that debate. But uh, um, yeah, it's kind of, it was interesting to see the, 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 uh, 
Well, really, I mean, within the church, all sorts of division um, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, a number of people who are incredibly pissed off and others who who ate it up. Right. Because it is this idea of I'm I'm a godly person and and, mm -hmm. and God's on my side. Yeah, it's a, the law and order thing is a, is an old this is this is not a new photo op. It's just a particularly awkward one. But it's, it's the authenticity of it, right? I mean, that's what's kind of stunning to me. I, I get the argument of, of you know, faith and, and, you know, being blessed from on high. But Trump is so awkward at presenting that message, right? I mean, there are other yeah. their previous presidents. George W. Bush was very, very good at that and connected with the evangelical community. I'm, I'm surprised, right? I, I know there's been criticism, but not from the evangelical community for this. They're eating this up, right? I mean, he stands up there with this book, right? And it's, you know, he doesn't know how to hold it. And it just, I, I, again, I, I was really surprised that that they thought that was a good idea, that either Ivanka or whoever it was, Hope Hicks, thought, thought this would be a good idea. Because um, I, I see this being one of the, one of the moments that will stick in history. People will remember that walkover. They will remember being, you know, not necessarily, I think it is tear gassing, but I mean, pepper spray, all of that. This is going to be Just a mark on, on Trump's legacy. I think this will sure. be gone in a week. <laughs> no, yeah. Nick, you think so? 100%. So like any good Catholic, I haven't read the Bible. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, that's that's those are exceptionally interesting points. And I'd actually like to talk to you more about about that, Justin, um, if we have time. But um, to me, this is this is you know what he did was yeah like you said it was awkward it was weird it didn't make any appreciable sense um and it wasn't getting a a genuine point across having said that what fucking world have you been living in for the past three years you know exactly why this is happening and everybody else knows exactly why this was happening and has their own spin to it we can talk about confirmation bias and bias versus agenda the same way that uh, and I 100% believe this, that the the corporate media is agenda driven it can equally be said of evangelical Christians at this point, because they th this is not about religion. This is about your particular position in the, the power. Yeah, to some extent, it's about power and, and place. And, you know, you have, again, you have your avatar to get your point across the same way that the left has their avatars to get oh, the point across. So depressing, right? For a message. Really he doesn't even have to believe in any of this. All he has to do is hold, it's like a, like holding up a chip. I've None had a Bible. Like, everything. Like, you think gone. Obama believed in hope and change while he was droning every, <laughs> every next fucking brown kid in the, the Middle East and Asia? Are you insane? It's all at least a, bullshit. At least a little. No, no, it's complete and utter horseshit. No, I, well, like, the, it's, uh, go ahead, Bill. The reason I think you're wrong, Nick, is that there, <laughs> there have been some who have expressed some shame over this, right? And so you're seeing, uh, to Justin's point, they're seeing some pushback from some religious communities and others who were on that walk, right? You know, uh, Mark Esper and others who, who get that this is not good. And maybe that's a transition into the civil military divide, but like they now get that this was you know, didn't want to be in this picture. This is not going to be one where I'm happy, you know, 10 years from now that I was at this moment. They but, don't want to be in that picture after the fact. They were fine marching across the place and standing next to him while they took a picture. And it was as everything goes bad that Esper is like, oh, I shouldn't have. I, I imagine the military. There's an interesting divide in all of this between and we can between the police and the military, which I think yeah. people in the U.S. oftentimes conflate the two. Uh, and we could get into the whole insurrection act and stuff like that. But 
But there's even there've been some interesting polls in terms of like uh, tr- support for Trump amongst the military is significantly lower than support for Trump amongst the police. And and I I wouldn't be uh-huh. surprised that, uh, because of norms and all of these old traditions. I I think that Esper and Millie and some of those others really took a I think they they heard from a lot of people in the military because of these traditions of civil military relations and Esper didn't seem to know what to do with it today. He he walked it back said he doesn't support using the insurrection act. But then later in the day, he's, he, he had, he had started to call troops away from DC and he put a halt to that. And he's trying to please so many people. He doesn't know what to do. I don't think. But I, I do think his statement today was big, right? It won't get a lot of attention, but that walk back was significant because he had to think about that entire military establishment. And I think you're right, Phil, who was saying, this is not who we, we don't respond to political whims, right? We do. Our job is, is to be the military and not to, to police the country. So I mean, I give him a little bit of credit for making that statement today, which I think he had to if he was going to have any credibility. And I think it gets him fired. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised, you know, three weeks from now if he's gone and, you know, O'Brien, the national security advisor, is our new secretary of defense. I, I think this – so you don't – you think this won't stick around. I, I, I tend to think – yeah, I mean, I tend to think that it, it's I've thought this before, but it, I mean, it seems like the contrasts were so over the top in this, the, the 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 gassing, the dispersal of the crowd to make way for this photo op. It, it, it touches on so many things, so many people. If you're if you're in support of the protests, you're pissed off about it. If you're a civil libertarian in support of First Amendment rights, you're pissed off about it. Right. That this this narcissistic president who's going to you know attack launch an attack on peacefully protesting people in order just to get his photo off. If libertarians you're, you know, like, libertarians yeah. are highly inconsistent on this point. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but I mean, if you're if you're religious, I, there were people I, I, I still think that, you know, Trump has his base. He has this 35 percent of people who are going to eat up whatever he does. But I, I don't know. I think this might I think that the symbolism of that moment might be. I, I think it might stick around. I think like 10 years from now, when we look back on the Trump presidency, that might be one of those moments that kind of exemplifies the tensions of this era. But I mean, what lens are you looking at it through? Realistically, the, the mo- most of those conversations that are happening, the, the more new, not nuanced conversations, but the continuous conversations that are happening aren't happening on um, mainstream media because they have more shit than they know what to do with. And they move on to they're they're locusts. They move from one thing to another. And the continuing conversation is happening on social media where the narrative bends to your will, depending on who you're talking to and what people are involved in it. And everybody is presenting their own particular opinion. Truth is, is subjective, completely and utterly subjective at this point. Not in reality. (laughs) I'm not saying in reality. I'm saying objective truth in the political sphere that we're talking about right now no longer exists because everybody has access and people talk about this all the time. You can't know what's in somebody's head and what they're thinking. I can know exactly what every person is thinking at any moment of the day because they put it out there every moment of the day. There is nothing that we don't know about what people think. It, it's it's everywhere. And they're going, to, again, to bend it to meet their, their needs. It's, again, the difference between bias and agenda, starting with an endpoint and filling in the data as it comes in to meet what your needs. And, and, and this, this will, it will be gone because there will be something else to go. I have to put my spin on this, whether you're talking about it from the right or the left. And it happens on both sides, whether you think so or not. 
Um, I, yeah, I, I think it's I, this. This will be this will be a blip on the radar, just like everything else has been a blip on the so, radar for the past three years. So I largely endorse your cynicism because I think you're right. People, people <laughs> do people do largely, you know, filter the the news that they get. You know, this is you know cognitive bias stuff, right? Information screens. We we listen to information that lines up with our worldview, and we you know cast aside stuff that doesn't. Um, and so I think in general, that's true. But at the margins, people do change their minds, right? Some people do change their minds. And and with cognitive bias type stuff, when they do change their minds, or, or it's when those contrasts are like so overwhelming that they can't be ignored. And that's where I think this felt a little bit like that, right? If you're if you think that if you claim that, I don't know, if you're a conservative Republican who stands for, you know, Bill of Rights and small government, and and, you know, God and all these other things, like that little march, right? The speech followed by the the gassing of protesters, followed by this awkward. You got a whole lot of contrast right there about what the values you believe in, and so I I think you're right. Most people won't change their minds about it, but I think some people will. I mean, I have friends in uh, in Louisville who are evangelical Christians who um, are definitely not of the Robert Jeffress sort, and I do think that that this this presidency, I think there are some of them who have, uh, you know, they, they um, squinted their eyes and, and pulled the lever for Trump, uh, you know, mostly because of abortion and because of things that they believed about Hillary Clinton. Um, and, and but who over the last three and a half years have been um, just very, very disappointed and not, not disappointed, like they, they've become. Uh, disappointed in them in themselves, you know, for not seeing things. So I don't know that this will like. I don't know. I would. I would love. I mean, as a theologian, it's great when these things are like have you know. I, I have current events to talk about with my students. It's awesome because uh, most of them, <laughs> you know, are taking theology because they have to, and uh, this is Catholic University, and and so it doesn't feel relevant. And so I love it when things are relevant. But I do. I sort of agree with Nick that it may be a blip just because everything is a blip now. Like I just can't, there's been so many things, you know? Yeah. The, the yeah. evidence on my, and I'll show, I'll say this and I'll show up. The evidence yeah. that, that I would point to is that the, the, the Biden Trump polling over the last two months has gone from basically an even tie to now Biden's up 12. So it was like even, and then Biden was up like six a month ago. He's up like 11 now. And so there are people for whatever reason who, I mean, that could be the course of an election and people sort of shifting, but that's a pretty big swing for, for June, the summer before a national election. And it's always hard to tell how the American public is reacting to something. And to your point, Nick, right, because we are so partisan and so divided. But I think the international reaction to this is somewhat telling. I don't know if you saw the Australian coverage of this, like Austra uh, Australia had some uh, some journalists in the crowd there and they got beat up and there was a big deal there. And maybe more importantly, Justin Trudeau's response to this when they asked him about what he thought about Trump's reaction. And he sat there for 20 seconds didn't say anything like he just sort of as he's contemplating this and he knows he has to say something. Right. Um, I think that suggests we're in a we're in a bigger moment than we may always appreciate. And and one in which the American public may be shifting in ways that we're not measuring yet. Nobody That's, cares what Canadians yeah. think. Also true. <laughs> <laughs> I say no. that because Justin's a Canadian. <laughs> it's um, no, the 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 narrative is I, I, I firmly believe that this is. If you want to talk about the difference between Biden and Trump, uh, especially in terms of uh, approval numbers, 
this is nothing. Like, w- w- this is going to be within a percentage point come November. This, this is the stock market. It means nothing because the narratives have already been built. You either gassed uh, peaceful protesters uh, who were there lawfully before a curfew or you uh, removed uh, protesters who previously had tried to burn down a church and tagged historical buildings. Who It was the same group of people who were not going to leave before a curfew was in place uh, and you took back what, what you should have taken back. Those are the two narratives at this point. And, and you will not find many people who are going to look into the nuances of that. I, I, I don't think this is going to change. It's every conversation that we've had about anything else, over the, especially over the past few months, whether we're talking about COVID or this or foreign affairs or anything, because the right doesn't give a shit about foreign affairs at this point, especially Justin Trudeau, probably, uh, you know, uh, highest among, among most at this point. Uh, and the left doesn't care about anything that Trump will or, or potentially could do right. It, like, it doesn't matter. Not that he did anything right, but even the concept of those two concepts like, can't even enter the, the, the wider conversation. This is done. Let's, let's, let's no, move on. It, it, you're wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> and here's, here's, here's why. I mean, I think one, uh, this is, I think this is a big deal. And we can't forget that we're having this conversation in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, no, we're not. And the worst it's done. Of the crisis. <laughs> <laughs> All of these things. This is, if you, it didn't matter how, it didn't matter who your president was. It would be incredibly difficult to win re-election in this world. Um, and I don't know. I, I In some ways, this this could have been a softball where he could have responded in that way in which, uh, you know, George W. Bush did after 9-11. I don't know if we saw, but his press secretary today was comparing Trump to Churchill, you know, after after the bombings and, and George W. Bush. And, and that's clearly not the case. He's not embracing that role and I think these things are going to linger and just kind of wear people down to say, I don't care who's running against them. I'm, I'm tired of this stuff. I guess so, we'll see. <laughs> I, 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 apparently, while we have had this conversation, uh, Jim Mattis has broken his silence, who talked about how he was going to, you know, he would know the time to speak up. Yeah. Former Secretary of Defense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he what apparently he denounces, denounced Trump and described him as a threat to the Constitution. So... That's, we'll have that to talk about next week. That sounds traitorous. <laughs> I don't trust him. Yeah. That's interesting because you know there was there was criticism of Esper today for not resigning, uh, and there was this really interesting conversation about whether it's better to resign, what Mattis did, or to to give a press conference and have a more public rebuke. Uh, but that's that's important that Mattis weighed in, and we've been arguing for a long time that more of those former officials should have said so. That's where I think the, the, the rhetoric around launching, I mean, we haven't talked that much about it, but when, what went along with all of this stuff with Trump walking over to the church was this rhetoric about unleashing the, the, uh, the military on the American people, essentially, if necessary. And I, I think that's for military people that crosses a line that is, that's, mm-hmm. that's held mm-hmm. sacred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe more so than the American public. Some of the polls right. have suggested that the, the American public is okay with that, but not so much the military. Mm-hmm. Should we kick around this concept of law and order, or do we got to wrap up, Nick? <laughs> um, I, don't know. I mean, I feel like this conversation should probably go a little bit longer than normal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, so Justin, you started us off talking about this this idea of, of law and order and its connection to religion, uh, and I guess I'm I'm curious whether 
whether evangelicals, whether that combination of him of him holding the Bible and claiming to be the law and order president, does that does that work for that community? That is that message strong enough where they look other way, look the other way on all these other issues? Yeah, I mean, um, I can imagine it being strong enough uh, because there because as I said, there's been this history of really coming to identify, I guess, the sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of, of the presidency and the nation state, at least when it's a Republican president. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I do think that that is going to be um, effective. I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, when we're talking about 81% of evangelical Christians or whatever, we're talking about a lot of white people, a lot of white Christians um, that are uh, that, that voted for Trump in the 2016 election. Um, and in a way, it's almost surprising that it wasn't more now that we've seen evangelicalism revealed in this in this light of the, in the light of this presidency. Um, so so, yeah, there may be additional resistance um, in this election, but um I do think that that the idea of, um, you know, for, for white people, for white Christians in particular, uh, the idea of American exceptionalism um, is very difficult to uh, to let go of. And so there's this there's this notion that and, and that exceptionalism has a lot to do with um, the benefits that accrue to white people in, in, a you know, a country that's been shaped by white supremacy, um, over the course of its history. And so even though it's so simple, I mean, in the words of their, uh, savior, Jesus, that, um, that if, if the Sabbath is hurting God's creatures, you change it. In other words, you know, if any human made order is hurting those whom God has created to flourish and God has created all persons to flourish. I mean, God is the original, all lives matter, but the problem is all lives matter to God. They don't to us. Right. And so what, how God's agenda gets worked out in the context of any status quo in which some count for less than others is that God is partisan on behalf of the marginalized. And um, in order to accept that, you also have to accept that it is possible for um, America as God's chosen nation, uh, to, to need to change. And I mean, there's a social gospel theologian, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, who talks about kind of give this like analysis, um, of the, uh, the, he kind of imagined the centuries all hanging out together and that, that the, um, you know, and this was around the turn of the turn of the uh, 19th into the 20th century. And he kind of imagined previous centuries, they they would like the 17th century would be hanging out with the 16th century or whatever. And they'd all get together every hundred years and they would kind of like shit on each other, you know? And so some of them would go like, well, I did this and that. Right. And I did these amazing things. And, um, you know, aren't I great. And, and the other ones would have to criticize them because in the present, it's very hard to see that, that your present moment needs to be, especially if you're the one who uh, by and large benefits from current arrangements. And so the hard thing to do is not just to look back in the past and, and see what, wow, we were so wrong in the fifties or we were so wrong, you know, uh, in the eighties or whatever, but actually to look at the present moment and say, what will future generations look back and say, you first, you, you were forsaking your, your, not only your political obligations, but your sacred obligations. And it's very difficult. And there are um, some evangelicals that have really been convinced that um, this order is the only possible. And, you know, so there's also an existential reason that that's terrifying, right? Is that 
life is uncertain and history is change. And that's just fundamentally what it means to exist in time as a human being. And so that means that we're always anxious. Anxiety is just the mood of our lives, according to Soren Kierkegaard, who's one of my favorite um, philosophers and theologians. And so therefore, any order, especially one that, that, that you don't feel, you know, asks you really to give up that much. Um, any order feels like a, a raft in the storm of chaos of existence. And so the, the whole idea of like, what if this thing would, would change, right, is, uh, is terrifying. If, especially, but if you're the person who's suffering anguish as a result of the, the layout of that order, then, then you hear the words of the prophets and the words of Jesus as not abrasive, but as energizing and hopeful. And, um, and right now, white evangelicals are not there yet. I do see, I mean, I'll just talk about my own city in Louisville. There is this movement of, uh, you know, Empower West, it's called. And um, it's basically a bunch of, of congregations because as Martin Luther King used to talk about all the time, he was very disappointed that the most segregated hour of the week in America was still, uh, you know, Sunday morning, 10 to 11 or whatever um, the time was, right? And people don't worship together. And That's um, early. Can we go later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 11 to 12. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so some church leaders here in Louisville have uh, have made significant efforts in about the last five years to bridge uh, the Ninth Street divide, basically, at least for people of faith. And um, so there's been this citywide book club and you've got these white congregations. Some of them are, you know, a lot of the ones that buy into this. Right. They're they're kind of the progressive white congregations. They they, they love to think of themselves as, uh, you know, hashtag BLM. Right. Um, but in fact, they're really, really, uh, you know, milk white congregations. And but anyway, so they're getting together with their African-American neighbors in the city and reading these books, some of them really challenging books, like um, Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told. I don't know if you guys know about that book. Um, uh, Carol Anderson, White Rage. Um, these are just some of the recent, but and they're tough and like tough, in, at least for people that aren't used to talking about race or only used to talking about race in the in the kind of sanitized way that um, we do on our social media platforms and stuff. And what's happened there is um, it has all of a sudden become in this city imperative upon predominantly white churches to um, practice uh, kind of uncomfortable thinking about their own uh, complicity and their inheritance of racist systems. And um, so I do think that there is a possibility for sure of evangelicals even being part of that. And that, you know, I have students who go to a big mega church in town and I won't name it because it's a, yeah, it's a big place. And, and it is not, you know, it's a very kind of conservative uh, um, evangelical congregation, but even there, I mean, I, they, they report to me, they always want to know if I agree with their pastor or whatever, right. When they're hearing stuff in class and, um, and I never tell them yes or no. I'm like, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but uh, but even there, I'm I'm seeing movement at least on questions of, you know, if we claim to uh, represent this person, uh, then we cannot we cannot um, ignore these types of moral questions. So yeah, I do I do think that 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 um, holding to order just as the American status quo is, is at risk in a way that is kind of interesting and possibly, you know, uh, signals a constructive future for, um, evangelical Christianity. But like I said, I'm not, I'm, I'm still an outsider to that world, um, myself. So I, it's not like I'm there on Sunday mornings, right? My church is very, 
you know, lefty progressive. Yeah. It's a really interesting point because the, I mean, evangelical Christians were largely apolitical until the late 20th to like the 1970s and eighties and kind of you, yeah. you know, jumped on board with the abortion issue and whatnot. And, and, and when you look at like a, a comparative perspective, the role of religion in politics around the world, there's this, tension at play where as churches or as religious groups gain access to power, there are benefits to that, right? And that you, you know, you can pass policies and, and whatever, but there are also drawbacks, as you pointed out earlier in this podcast, you can't be critical. It's harder to sort of speak for the people, but you have evangelical Christianity, which has sort of attained this position of power in American politics for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And, and so change is a threat to that, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it puts, puts the evangelical community in this difficult position of, you know, maybe you don't agree with Trump, but the alternative, which is in some way losing power um, is, is threatening, which is where I think the sort of law and order can, mm -hmm. can mean something much deeper to, to a sort of Christian community than, mm -hmm. you know, just a, like the police need to be out there sort of way. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And I do also, you know, just to tack one more thing onto that, as far as like the shifts in evangelicalism there, um, it is undeniable that women are increasingly significant theological um, influences in the evangelical world. Um, and, the, and they're often women who start out as like uh, bloggers and, uh, you know, that are very much insiders to the evangelical tradition, but who have become deeply critical of their upbringing and also have therefore provided a, a refuge for many evangelicals who have felt like they have to just leave their church in order to still be Christian. Um, and now those women are often uh, chastised and, and criticized by uh, the gatekeepers of evangelical theological power. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, leaders of uh, really patriarchal denominations and stuff. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, their books sell a lot of copies and they are the women are kicking ass in uh, and some of them are ex evangelicals. You know, they would call themselves that. But um, but they are really kicking ass in that world. And and um, I've seen that influence of those people on members of my own family who are evangelicals who have read these books and have just gone like they've started to say, um, not necessarily change their doctrinal positions on anything, but they started to say, um, why would, why would God, why would this loving God tell me that I have to be opposed to these people and their pain or their, I mean, my own grandmother who's, you know, in her nineties, I was, uh, and now it's not necessarily because she was reading these theologians, but you know, um, I, I was visiting with her uh, a couple of years ago and she had a newspaper there and she doesn't hear too well. And, you know, so I'm yelling at her uh, what's going on in my day and stuff. And, and she's got this newspaper there and it's, it's open to the front or it's the front page is visible and it's about the pride parade that, that had happened uh, in, in her city, you know, the day before. And she picks it up and she kind of points to the story. And I just thought, Oh boy, um, what's, what's about to happen right in this conversation. And she goes, well, you know, there are people too, right? And uh, <laughs> and I thought, my goodness, like that was not what I was expecting. And but also, like from her perspective, it's not about it's not necessarily about. I think in a way, it's probably 
she's been an independent woman. My grand, my grandfather died a long time ago. And so she's done her own thinking. And there, there's lots of that going on in the evangelical church. And I think it is attributable to um, the liberation of women thinkers. And, uh, and so it doesn't mean they're losing their faith or anything, right? It just means that it's changing. The shape of it is changing. Yeah. Well, that that's got to be scary to the Trump administration, right? Because yeah. they're they have to think that this their reelection strategy and their response to to the week's events really is going to center not on religion, but on this idea of of law and order and authoritarianism. This idea that you follow um, the way the political position is, not where the religious doctrine yeah, yeah, yeah. is. And, and I, yeah. again, I'm I don't I'm not I'm not sure where that's all going to shake out. I, all right, so here, here's the. <laughs> Here, here's the opposing perspective. So yeah. um, uh, realistically, the conversation is almost identical in a lot of instances on the left. And I I highly encourage people to uh, to read uh, The New Right by uh, Michael Malice, uh, avowed anarchist and provocateur. Um, hilarious guy, really insightful. Uh, he come up, he came up with this concept, which he refers to as the evangelical left, which realistically is pretty much the dogmatic principles that the right used to events uh, uh, more so than they do right now, or used to be ascribed to the right, especially the evangelical right, is equally as pronounced and if not more pronounced in modern society on the left, where it doesn't have it doesn't operate under the guise of religion. It operates under the guise of political norms and institutions and normal behavior, quote unquote, as uh, put out there by the people who put the message out there, mainly governmental officials and the media uh, and the entertainment industry more than anything, where if you don't ascribe to a particular viewpoint, you are ostracized from that community and made to, to, um, you know, you, you can't operate or, or you're, you're deemed uh, uh, a heretic um, if you don't evince that particular worldview. And as we talk about evangelical Christians, where they have this, they're supposedly having this reckoning with how they operate and the fundamental tenets of their religion and what that means for how they behave in a relatively secular society, that conversation also should be happening on the left. But most of the people, especially on the right, feel that the left, especially the evangelical left, as it's conceived of, has been in power, including during conservative administrations, more so than actual conservative Americans have, who feel ostracized. And that's how we get 2016 and Trump and this upswell of what is deemed now, you know, radical conservative thought. Um, I think it's it's an interesting discussion to have because we we chastise evangelicals on the right from a religious perspective, but the same thing can absolutely be attributed to people on the left. And but if you do that, you are deemed a heretic across mainstream media and social media because you don't ascribe to the norms that the political sphere and political theater has put in place. Um, and I don't see that. That's why I try and rail against that as much as is humanly possible. Because to think that and the, the main conversation you should always be having with yourself is maybe I'm not one of the good guys. Maybe I'm one of the bad guys. And that's a conversation that conservatives feel like they have to have with themselves constantly, every fucking day. And that same conversation does not happen on the left. You're either with us or against us for a side that talks about 
non-binary thinking, you sure love to shove people into binary thought processes. They're bad. I'm not one of them. So by definition, I have to be good. And I'm not saying that this, this is necessarily related to this particular situation, but some elements that are presented can absolutely be attributed to this, inf- or this particular situation. Mm-hmm. And I, like, you can talk about religion in the way that people operate in society all day. But if you don't talk about the other side in that same capacity and their fundamental ability to change or not change, you're only having half of the conversation. And we need to have more of that conversation because neither side is necessarily right in this, this, uh, I'm going to say situation again. I really wish I had a beer to drink with that. Um, I, um like it, it's, I'm sorry. So, go ahead. Okay. Wait, wait, Nick. I just, I want to get clear on this. Are you yeah, saying yeah, yeah. that, that conservatives are doing this soul searching where they're asking, am I really the good guy or not? And that people on the I mean, left are not doing that. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that they're, that they're not. I'm saying that, it seems to be that there's a, a wider conversation. Hmm. Let me, let me, hmm. How do I, how do so, I mean, I know a lot of dogmatists on, on the right too. So oh, all absolutely. I'm saying, right. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. I'm saying that the conversation isn't presented out there. Like that conversation is happening or that there's a more nuanced conversation happening yeah, on yeah. the left outside of these major, major events, yeah. which yeah, everybody is having to wrestle with this particular situation, mm-hmm. but like every time, every time we talk, every single conversation that we have, I have to think about what my perspective is and how it fits with the worldview that you guys are going to put out there. Because generally, we're not in lockstep on a lot of stuff. And that's fine. I'm happy to do that. From a political perspective, you should be doing that. And you should question everything. Yeah. Uh, the same yeah. way that you should question everything from a societal standpoint when you're talking about religion and how you fit into that mix. When we, it just seems like the conversation is regularly that conservative Christ, conservative Christians need to wrestle with this conversation more than than progressives and, and liberals do in in just kind of an overarching. And we're talking about society in general. Yeah, and as a theologian, I don't necessarily interpret. So you know. Um, I think there, like there's different there's different kinds of conservatism, I guess, from from my sure. perspective, right? There are some there are some um, forms of like biblicism. There are some approaches, hermeneutic approaches to the Bible, for example, versus um, you know hermeneutic approaches to the authority of tradition, uh, and those do not easily map onto conservative social positions versus liberal social positions and that sort of thing, right? So. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, and certainly. So anyway, when I talk about like progressive, I, I wouldn't necessarily even mean um, progressive, like like when I'm thinking about Christians and, and the way that they interpret the Bible, it's a different it's just a different conversation. It's not liberal conservative. Sure. It has to do with like what is text and, and how do you approach the text and, and sure. how does your tradition reflect <clears throat> the, um, you know, or how does your denomination reflect the the broader Christian tradition, that sort of thing. But I agree. I mean, in my church, you know, it's just very like, well, we're, we're progressive. So we're Democrats and we're, you know, right. so we're uh, whatever. And I'm Canadian. So I'm neither of those parties. Uh, I'm not allowed to vote. Don't worry. Don't worry. If I've said anything that's too uh, radical or leftist, uh, you know, they, they, they don't let me vote anyway. So it's no big deal. Um, anyway, sorry, Phil, I was interrupting you. 
Yeah. No, I was just going to, I was just going to say that I, I don't think like, like when I'm talking about how the, as evangelicals have sort of attained this position of power, it, you know, it cha- brings these challenges along. I'm not necessarily saying that they, they should be questioning this and, and the left isn't. I, I mean, I think it's just the nature of the situation they're in when they find themselves in power that it raises these sorts of questions. And I, I think the left has the same thing going on. I don't think we're claiming that the left doesn't, right? We just went through a, a, a primary in which you had the Bernie Sanders wing and the more moderate ring debating about, you know, what the, what the party should stand for and where it should stand for. I, I mean, I, I don't think either of them is monolithic or not mm-hmm. questioning mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Some of it also comes back to power, too. When you look historically at the United States, it is Protestants, not necessarily saying Democrat or Republican, but Protestants have controlled the political discourse here. So, I mean, I think that's where that that some of that pushback comes from if you've been in power and you're controlling the system you have more to answer for than if you're on the margins and you're on the outside so mm-hmm. uh, but again yeah everybody needs to have some soul searching in all of this mm-hmm. absolutely oh god this yeah. is really deep this is great <laughs> <laughs> we talked jesus we talked politics Trump. i'm i'm very happy um <clears throat> justin thank you so much for for joining us we really appreciate it thanks for having um, me you guys this is great <clears throat> Um, anything else we need to go over guys? No, no, I'm good. Has to be better, right? I mean, like the world has to be better next week, right? Oh, my sweet summer child. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. Thank you guys for, for joining us. Uh, yeah. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook live shows every Wednesday, probably around four 30. Um, yeah. Merch line podcast, all that fun stuff. Look it up. I'm too tired to give you the specifics. Um, yeah and then uh yeah i i I hope it's better next week but uh we will certainly be talking about it so we will we will see you guys then thank you again justin thanks for having me this is great bye guys (laughs) cheers cheers